we're um, continuing with our month of generosity. Um, I'm actually going to talk about tithing today. It's going to be a little bit like a lecture. <laughs> what are you laughing at, Russell? Time to leave. <laughs> hey? Time to leave. Time to leave. <laughs> <laughs> no, what you need to do now is get your iPads out and start taking notes. Because <laughs> I've, I've got a bit of history to share with you and... and uh, some Bible references, and we're talking a little bit about theology and practice in the church, and uh, we might not even get it finished. If we don't, I'm pretty relaxed about that because I'll come back next week, even if you don't. <laughs> so where have we been so far on, on this journey about generosity? I started out focusing on 2 Corinthians chapter 9. 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 are a very detailed explanation about motivation for giving for special causes. In this case, it was a special offering taken up for uh, Christians in uh, Jerusalem who were very, very poor. Uh, many of them uh, were living at or below starvation level and, of course, having come to Christ, having accepted Christianity, they were ostracised as well because they, they were Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. And so they were doing it pretty tough and Paul was organising a collection to be taken up specifically to relieve them of their poverty. So 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 are the, it's the best discussion on motivation for giving that you'll find in the Bible. And uh, importantly, what Paul stresses is that this giving is to be a decision of the heart and when we make reference to the heart in Scripture, that's about it being determined as a spiritual activity. So it's the influence where we allow the Holy Spirit to influence our spirit in making decision to give. I happen to think that this applies to, as it were, special purpose giving. And you might recall on that particular weekend we had a special um, a special offering for the um, people living up in North Queensland affected by the floods. Last week, I focused on 1 Corinthians chapter 9, which actually talks about supporting what they call in the New Testament pastors and, and elders of the local church. And I explained how I thought that when we fast forward from the 1st century to the 21st century, this is the basis upon which we make decisions about supporting the local church. So it's a little bit more than simply making sure that the pastor's got some money in his or her pocket. Of course, our situation at the present time is I don't take uh, any kind of salary or payment uh, from the church. Praise God as we grow. In time, I will be able to, and I will be able to devote more time to pastoring the church. But at the moment, uh, we support the church rather than the church supporting us, and that's perfectly appropriate. But I think if you want to find the basis for 21st century support of the local church, you will really find it in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and there's also a reference in 1 Timothy chapter 5 verses 17 to 18. So what I want to do today is to focus on the tithe. And I have 
talked about this before, it was way back in May 2016. I dare say most of you who might have been here won't remember. There's probably a greater chance that you'll remember what we had for community time than what I actually spoke about. And that's okay, I'm cool with that. I've been a university lecturer for a long time. I know that most people have a good forgettery. You know, their forgettery is better than their memory, right? So I want to go over this again uh, in, in some detail because I think it's really important. And uh, it's interesting that uh, tithing has been a fairly controversial topic ever since the establishment of the Christian church. So debates about whether or not we should tithe in terms of the Old Testament laws of tithing, it's been going on ever since the Christian church was established. So you go right back to the early days. There were discussions about whether or not we should tithe 10% every time we are paid. And that went all the way through, right the way through the early church, right the way through the Reformation, post-Reformation, right up until around about 1873 in America. Now, I, I knew that there was a big shift at that time. I was never sure why, so I've done a little bit of research. I can't be absolutely certain, but in 1873, there was a depression in the United States, in Great Britain, in Germany and some other European countries. Now, a depression is when the pace of economic activity slows down so much that a lot of people lose their job, a lot of businesses go broke because they can't pay their bills, and in general, it's a pretty bad time economically. The last depression we've, we've had uh, in the world, the last depression that Australia experienced was during the 1930s, where unemployment rates were around 25%. Uh, my mum and dad lived through the Great Depression of the 1930s. My, my mum's parents lost their farm. They were fruit growers. And uh, they lived in a town in New South Wales called Leeton. There was a, a, a fruit canning factory. In, in Leeton, it's called Latona. The brand doesn't exist anymore, but if you're old like me, you might remember buying cans of Latona um, preserved fruit. And every day during the Depression, the farmers used to take buckets of fruit up to the factory and hope that the factory would take their buckets. Unfortunately for my maternal grandparents, they didn't take enough buckets and they lost their farm. Uh, my dad was a small boy. During the Depression, they lived on a farm and uh, they were able to survive because there were rabbits everywhere. And uh, my dad would not touch a rabbit after that. He wouldn't eat rabbit. We used to go, we used to shoot rabbits when we were kids and bring them home and skin them and cook them. And I used to have rabbit sandwiches at school. But I didn't mind rabbit because if you cooked it right, it was a bit like nice moist chicken. And uh, most of my friends couldn't tell I was eating rabbit. They thought I was having chicken. Because only really poor families ate rabbit where I was brought up and I didn't want people to think I came from a poor family. <laughs> um, so, he, he, so it had a big influence on him and, and, and depressions do because they touch everybody. And so there was a significant depression that was triggered in 1873 by the collapse of a couple of very large financial institutions, big investment companies. Now, that presented a big problem for the church. But also, 
If you go back a little bit further in history in the United States, there was actually direct government support for pastors. And uh, that all stopped by 1833. So the churches were looking for some way of sustaining themselves financially. And at around about that time, from about 1830 through to about 1880, there were a number of books written in the United States about tithing. And tithing kind of caught on as the way in which to sustain financially the local church. And of course, it's become very, very strong in the United States in evangelical, charismatic and Pentecostal churches. And the thinking, of course, has moved across the rest of the Western world, at least, and into Africa and South America as well, where evangelical and Pentecostal churches are growing very, very rapidly. So probably because there was this Great Depression and churches were finding it very, very hard to make ends meet, the doctrine of tithing became established in a sense as the taught norm. And when I say the taught norm, what I mean is that was what was taught from the pulpit. But there has never been a time in modern history when the majority of people who go to church actually tithe. Believe it or not, in America today, only 3% of churchgoers tithe 10% or give over and above 10%. Surprisingly, average giving in the church today is less than it was during the Great Depression of the 1930s. In other words, people who were unemployed, who were doing it tough, actually gave more as a percentage of what was in their pocket than they do today. And we're much, much more affluent. My personal view is that there's a crisis of generosity. And that's not just in the church, that's in our culture in general, because in our culture in general, me is the most important person in our world. And that's reinforced so often by what we see on television programs, by what we see in, in advertising. It's very, very strongly targeted at me satisfying all my desires. And so we tend to give what's left over after we have satisfied what we perceive to be all of our needs. So I want to talk about what the Bible has to say in relation to tithing, what the Bible has to say. You will hear from time to time somebody preach that we must tithe today because tithing isn't about law, that tithing actually existed before the law was actually written down, before it was codified by Moses, tithing existed. And the example which is mostly used is the example of Abram, later Abraham, of course. Some people also refer to, to Jacob. I'll talk about Jacob in a moment. Remember that um, Lot got into a lot of trouble, Abraham's nephew. He got into a lot of trouble. 
and he actually wound up, wound up being captured. There was a bit of a bit of a battle going on. There were five kings in Canaan who invaded the land that what would become Israel was living was were living in, and Lot was actually captured. So Abraham set out to rescue Lot, and he vowed before he went into battle, he vowed to God that he would not keep any of the spoils of the battle because his purpose was to rescue Lot, his nephew. As we know, Abraham went into battle and he won. He won decisively and he gained a lot of loot. After the victory, Melchizedek, who was both king and priest in Salem, which is short for Jerusalem. So he was the king of Jerusalem and he was also the priest because we hadn't established the Levitical priesthood at the time. So he was king and priest. In that sense, he was like Jesus, but we'll come to that a little later on. So Melchizedek is the king of Salem. He's also a priest. And after the battle, after Abraham wins the battle, he brings out bread and wine for a feast. Now, you might think that's not much of a feast. You know, think about what we have for communion. Could you imagine feasting on that? Possibly not, at least not without Vegemite <laughs> or peanut butter. <laughs> but back then, it wasn't a bad meal. So he brings out bread and wine for a feast. And uh, Abraham... Honouring his vow, he hands over 10% of the loot from his victory to Melchizedek. Yep, that was 10%, that was a tithe. Now, it wasn't all that unusual in the cultures that existed at the time to tithe out of the proceeds of a battle. So whoever won would tithe to a priest 10% of what they gained through their victory. So Abram was probably following what was the generally accepted custom of the time, only he was tithing to Melchizedek, king and priest of our God, not of some other God, but a priest of our God, the God we claim as our God. By the way, Abraham didn't keep the other 90%. He actually returned it to those over whom he had victory. So this is the first ever recording of tithing in the Bible. Now, if you were to build a case for tithing on that alone, the only time we would ever tithe would be after we had a fight with our neighbours <laughs> and won their house and car and swimming pool and we'd tithe 10% of that. Yes, I know, it sounds a bit silly, doesn't it? Now, I, I have read so many books and articles on tithing. There are so many authors who simply say, well, Abraham tithed 10%, so should we. But when you look at the context, you've really got to stretch it quite a lot to convert a single tithe in a whole lifetime to 10% of whatever money you get in your bank account before you pay tax or any other expenses. <laughs> right? I don't think that is a good basis 
for arguing in favour of what you might loosely call the modern tithe. As far as we know, Abraham only ever tithed that once, and it was out of the spoils of battle. We move on a little bit in time. Uh, this is also recorded in Genesis. We see Jacob promised to tithe. Now, of course, God renewed the Abrahamic covenant through Jacob, all right, because Jacob was one of the, the fathers of Israel. And, and God had made promises to Abraham, right, you're going to become a big nation, and there'll be so many people in this nation, they will exceed the number of grains of sand, right, or stars in the heaven. You, there'll, be so, there'll be so many, no one will ever be able to, to count them. And that they would be blessed and they would be a blessing. So there was a covenant. God renewed that covenant with Jacob. Now, you know what? If you read the life of Jacob, he wasn't actually a really nice dude. He didn't treat Esau terribly well. His name actually means grabber. To use a bit of Australian uh, phraseology, his name means grabber or somebody who tries to, to take what isn't his. And when you read the whole context of this tithe that Jacob promised to God, he was doing a deal with God. And you see, again, it wasn't all that unusual for people to do a deal with a strong king. You find a strong king and you say, listen, I'm going to hand over to you 10% of all my produce if you will protect me from all these other marauders. King thought, that's a good enough deal. I'll get 10% of all the produce of uh, this tribe or this group of people. And yeah, okay, I will protect them against attack from anybody else. And so God promises through a covenant to bless Jacob and to bless Jacob's descendants as he did with Abraham. And then the deal Jacob does is this. If, that's an important word, if God will be with me and keep me in this way that I am going, which was a prosperous way, and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on, then of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. So he was doing a deal. If you look after me, God, I'll give you back a tenth of what you give me. Now, we don't know whether he actually followed through or not because there's no other mention of Jacob tithing in, in the Bible. Some commentators argue that this single example establishes the tithe as part of the Abrahamic covenant of grace. So they're basically saying, well, you, you tithe by grace because Jacob tithed. Well, we actually don't know if he did or not. But again, he was in all likelihood reflecting what was custom of that time. You find someone who's a powerful king, you pay them 10% and they look after you. Of course, God does look after us. That's a good thing. And, and Jacob probably realised that God was much more powerful than any earthly king. So why not pay a tithe to God 
rather than some other king. So let us go from those two examples, those two examples, Old Testament, before the law of Moses. One, a tithe out of the proceeds of battle. And two, somebody does a deal with God. And many people argue that that sets a precedent outside of the law and for these reasons we should tithe today. So let's have a look at what the Mosaic law actually says about tithing. I didn't get to... Oh, sorry. I've got notes here, you see, and I didn't put those notes up on the, on the slides. That's a bit slack of me, isn't it? My goodness. I was going to say sack me, but don't. No, don't. Don't. Because I mightn't finish today, and I want to come back next week. Dock your pay. Dock my pay. I get three warnings. Yeah, three warnings. Written, I hope. All right. So let's have a look. And um, I've said to some people before that, that I think if you really try to work out exactly what the old Mosaic laws of tithing meant, you will eventually go mad. Because, frankly, no one has been able to work out exactly what it all meant. There's not even agreement on how many tithes there are. A lot of people would say there are three tithes. Well, maybe, maybe not. And the Bible is not actually always clear. So let's have a look at what the law actually says about tithing. So we're going to talk first about what many commentators call the first tithe. And by the way, tithe means 10%. Both the the Hebrew and the Greek words that are translated tithe, tithe, they mean 10%. Nothing less and nothing more. You can't sort of dance around it and say, well, I can give a tithe of 3% because it's not a tithe if it's only 3%. So the tithe is always 10%. The first tithe, one-tenth of the produce or increase of the land and every tenth animal in a herd or flock that passes under the rod, that's like a stock take, is holy to the Lord. That is, it's to be given up as as a tithe. So it was one-tenth of the grain and the fruit and the animals born on your land each year. Except for the, the sabbatical year, and I'm going to talk about that shortly. So the first tithe, which is outlined in Leviticus chapter 27 and Numbers chapter 18, if you owned land, you had to give up to God a tenth of the grain, the fruit, or the animals born on your property during the year. Now, if you didn't pay the tithe, you could postpone payment, then you had to add 20%. And that's a general principle of compensation in Old Testament law. You pay over the value plus 20%. And I often think today our legal system has gone way, way, way out of whack because when compensation is paid, it is certainly much, much greater than 20% and often millions and millions of dollars are awarded in damages. But the Old Testament standard was you pay for the damage, then add 20%. So if you didn't pay your tithe, that was okay. When you got around to paying it, you had to add 20%. The purpose of the tithe was very, very specific. This tithe, the so-called first tithe, 
was very, very specific. The tithe was to be paid to the Levites. The Levites were the people, they, they were the tribe of Israel that God had set apart to look after the, the tent of meeting, the tabernacle. They managed all of the feasts. So they were responsible for making sure that all of the ceremonial law uh, was, was facilitated, all right? And then a group of them became the priests. So Aaron, for example, was a priest. He was the first, he was a Levitical um, priest, and the, the priests were all descendants of, of Aaron. Now, there's a reason why the tithe was paid to the Levites, and that's because in the law, the Levites had no inheritance. What does that mean? They could not own land. And in an agricultural society, the only way in which you could provide sustenance for yourself and your family was by farming the land. The Levites were not given any land. So they had no inheritance. They had no means of supporting themselves. And so the tithe was established to provide provision for the Levites who looked after everything associated with all of the uh, ceremonial law. All the purification, all the forgiveness of sins, the festivals, everything. They had to look after that. Looked after the, the tent of meeting. They looked after the tabernacle. And then later on, of course, they were to look after the temple. Now, I would say that if you were going to strictly apply the law of tithing today and pay 10% to the church, then you'd better make sure that none of the pastors or the people who work for the church own anything. Okay? If you want to be strictly biblical, right? So if I was to stand up here and say, you owe me 10% every week, then I better not own a house. I do, <laughs> but I better not. So you can see where I'm going. That we're becoming a bit selective, I think, when we say you've got to tie 10%, and we don't apply any of the other law surrounding the tithe. Now, the, the Levites, of course, were also commanded to tithe 10% out of what they got to the priests. Right, that was the teruma. So the Levites got ten percent of the increase of the land, the fruit, the grain, and all of the baby animals. They got ten percent of that. Of that ten percent, they had to give ten percent to the priests to support the priests, and the priests were actually allowed to eat um, that 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 part of the the tithe. So there's a 10% that goes to the Levites and the Levites were not let off the hook. They had to tithe 10% to the priests. So that's the first tithe. Most commentators would argue that there's a second tithe. Whoops, I've gone too far. Sorry. The second tithe, which is outlined in Deuteronomy 12, and uh, in Deuteronomy 14. Now this, this tithe was set aside for, for worship and feasting. 
associated with the major festivals that were all part of that Old Testament Mosaic law. There was the Passover, uh, Weeks or Pentecost, and the Festival of Tabernacles, Tents or Booths, depending on what translation of the Bible that you read. There was, there was a lot of uh, festivals, a lot of um, feasting, indeed a lot of what you might call partying that was part of the framework of the Old Testament law. The purpose is never really set out in Scripture, but I believe the purpose of all of this feasting was to build relationship, first between the people and God, but second between the people. So you had to take your family and your household, including all your donkeys and camels, it was every, everyone was included, including all your, your animals, you had to go to Jerusalem for the feasting. And so you were supposed to set aside 10% of the increase of the land to pay for that, right? It was for you and your whole household. So your wife or wives, they often had multiple wives back in those days, your children, um, all your servants, slaves, whatever, and then your donkeys and your camels and whatever else you used, your bullocks and so on that you actually used, to produce your sustenance. And so you, you had to attend these festivals at various times each year. So that was the so-called second tithe. This is what the Lord said. He said, rejoice in all to which you have put your hand, you and your households, in which the Lord has blessed you. So it was this all-embracing thing. And its purpose was fellowship, community, Building relationship. Then we come to the third tithe. And uh, there's a lot of uh, discussion in, 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 in the commentaries about the third tithe. Uh, some people say it's a separate tithe. Um, Deuteronomy 26.12 kind of implies it's not actually an additional tithe. It's the first tithe which is distributed differently in the third year. But, you know, you could go either way. You could ask, well, what happens to the Levites in that year? Well, actually, they were entitled to a portion of the tithe of the third year. But its purpose was to look after the widows, the orphans, and the sojourners or foreigners in your community. And the foreigners, of course, back in those days, they weren't allowed to own any property either. So they were a bit like the Levites. They weren't allowed to own land. They didn't have an inheritance in Israel. So they didn't have the means of sustenance. They had to be supported by the community. And the support came through the so-called tithe of the third year. So it was set aside, set aside for, for Levites, the stranger, the fatherless, the widow, that they may come and eat and be satisfied, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hand which you do. So God established through this so-called third tithe a principle by which social welfare is delivered. And it was delivered to those who did not have the capacity to provide sustenance for themselves because they did not or could not under the law actually own land. Okay. Also, that tithe remained in the local community. So wherever you lived, was actually where you spent that tithe. 
So the other tithes didn't necessarily stay in the local community. The tithe that went to the Levites, that went to wherever the tent of meeting, the tabernacle or the temple was. And the second tithe, well, that was used up as you went with your family to the place that God had nominated for, for the festivals. This third tithe stayed in your local community and it was used to look after people who could not own land, the Levites, widows, orphans and foreigners who were living in the community. Now, it's interesting that there's a lot of people, a lot of people glibly say you should tithe 23.3% of your income. I've seen that in writing many, many times, so you should bring 23.3% along to church every week. Look, you could argue about this till the cows come home, literally, uh, because back in, at the time that the Mosaic Law was delivered to the people, there was no civil government, right? It was a theocracy where God was represented by a king, a judge, or the priests uh, to the people, and it was actually the religious authorities that managed all of the civil um, issues. There was no civil government like we have in Australia and many other countries today where there's actually separation of the state and, and the church. The two were one back at that time. So some people argue, well, we, we actually tithe because we're forced to tithe to government. So all the social welfare stuff is taken care of because I pay tax. I mean, people like me, I pay about a third of my income as tax. And um, that's used, among other reasons, for the government to look after social welfare and to pay for Medicare and a whole range of other things. So some people say, oh, we don't have to tithe because the government forces us to do tithing anyway. But of course, that leaves the question of well, how do you support the local church yet to be answered. And I think I've actually provided the answer to that last week, and maybe I'm doing all this in reverse. Now, if you want to know, well, how much should you tithe, that actually differs year by year. So there was a cycle of seven years in the Old Testament law, the seventh year being a sabbatical year in which you rested the earth. You didn't grow a crop. So there was no tithe at all paid in the seventh year. There was nothing to tithe on. Right? In that year, in that sabbatical year, you weren't allowed to plant, to cultivate. You could harvest, you could harvest from whatever came up automatically. So there would have been some seed in the ground. If that grew and it actually produced some seed or, or some fruit, you were allowed to take it. So you didn't starve in that year. It wasn't like a year-long fast. And of course, you would have to store something up from your previous crops. Uh, for that particular year. But there was no tithe at all paid in that year. So in this seven-year cycle, in year one, you pay the first and second tithe, first and second tithe in year two. In year three, you'd pay the first, second and third tithe. In year four, first and second. In year five, first and second. In year six, first, second and third. And in year seven, nothing. If you do the maths, it averages out at 20% over the seven-year cycle, oh, uh, sorry, over the six-year cycle. And in that seventh year, you pay none. Now, I've never, ever, ever heard that taught from the pulpit. Never. There was also something else in the law 
which was called the first fruits and firstborn offering. So in addition to tithing, Israel was required to dedicate to the Lord their first fruits. So the first fruits of, of crop, it was a basket full. It was dedicated to the Lord at the altar. And the firstborn of flocks of clean animals, uh, the firstborn of your flocks and herds, was dedicated to the Lord as well. For, for people, for the firstborn in a family, particularly the first male-born, and for the unclean animals, there was a different law that applied to them. It was a law of redemption, and I won't go into that. But they were, they were still kind of caught up in the system, so to speak. But they, you didn't have to hand your firstborn child over to the Lord. You didn't have to sacrifice them. But they were actually redeemed, so a payment was made for them, as was the case for unclean animals like, say, camels. Um, so you've got at least two tithes, possibly three, and then first fruits. And I've noted too that in recent years, in a lot of evangelical, charismatic and Pentecostal churches, we're now introducing the idea of first fruits. I know I've been in churches where they say, well, the financial year ends on the 30th of June, therefore in July we have our first fruits offering. <laughs> what are you laughing at? It's true. I've heard it. I've been around a while. I've heard it many, many times. And, uh, of course, in many churches, and I, I, I suppose I am a bit, I, I'm, I'm trying not to be critical, but I, I, I'm very strongly of the opinion that we must, 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 must base what we do in church on the Word of God. Not even necessarily on church history, because the church hasn't always got it right. But you'll often hear in relation to giving references to the book of Malachi, the last book in the uh, Old Testament. Malachi chapter 3 verses 8 to 10 are often quoted and uh, I think these relate to Deuteronomy chapter 28, 9 to 14 and frankly I have never ever heard anybody link those two portions of scripture but I'll explain why I believe they are linked. Now the problem that Malachi as a prophet had, are you okay if we go on for a few more minutes? I've got a little... Are you okay? Well, if it gets too bad, you can walk out and start your, your coffee. But um, I really think this is important stuff for us to get a hold of. Malachi's problem was this. The priestly class were not leading the people well. Right? The fundamental issue that Malachi addressed as a prophet was the fact that the priests were not doing their job properly. They weren't leading the people well. They had contempt for the law, which led to sin. They were divorcing faithful wives, marrying heathen women who practiced idolatry. And what did God say? God said in his law, don't marry foreigners. That's what he said. Most didn't take any notice of God. Solomon didn't take any notice of God. The priest didn't take any notice of God. We get towards the end of that Old Testament history period. It was about 400 years between Malachi and Jesus. We get there and we find that the, 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 the priests are not honouring the law. 
They're divorcing wives who have been faithful. They're deserting them for foreign wives against God's law. And they commit fraud as well because they're not paying tithes. Now, it's even debatable that this passage applies to the people because Malachi is primarily addressing the Levites and the priests who are not leading the people well. So it's arguable that this passage is not Malachi criticising the people for not tithing, but the Levitical class for not tithing. Now, if, if Malachi in these verses is criticising the people, then this is what I would say. As evangelical, charismatic, Pentecostal Christians, we tend to accept the teaching that we access the blessings of Deuteronomy 28 through faith, not through obedience to the law. So if you go to Deuteronomy 28, I won't because it's too long. Deuteronomy 28 actually lists all of the blessings that Israel will receive if they obey the law. It also lists all of the curses that will come upon Israel if they don't. Now generally speaking, our doctrine says we can access the blessings of Deuteronomy 28. We do it by faith because of the grace of God. Right? By grace, God now provides the blessings. We access those blessings by faith in the broken body and in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And that all happened because of the grace of God. Do you understand that? The problem I have with using these verses to convince people they should tithe is that in the context of tithing, we're saying you won't get the blessing until you tithe. And yet we access everything else by faith in the promises of God through His grace. Now, this is a probably a dangerous thing to say, but you see, I don't think you have to tithe to access the blessings of Deuteronomy 28. You have to have faith. And by faith, you access all the blessings. Not just some of them. And if you stop tithing today, that doesn't mean that God will somehow turn off the tap and curse you instead of bless you. Like I said, I might not finish today. I, I won't take up any more time now, but I do need to address the whole issue of references to tithing in the New Testament because many people argue that we should tithe because tithing existed before the law of Moses. <coughs> people also argue that we should tithe because Jesus told the Pharisees they should do it, and that was in New Testament times, and the book of Hebrews also has a discourse that refers to tithing, Melchizedek and Jesus. And I really want to address those issues as well. And uh, that's what we'll do next week. So I promise you'll all come back to hear the second part of part three. Is that all right? <laughs> okay. All right. So uh, 